Hello, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and today we're going to be talking to you about a couple of fascinating subjects. Number one, we have a question from Inquisitor John, uh, and he's talking about stock splits. What are they? When should they be used? What do they mean to the stockholder? What do they mean to prospective investors? All that good stuff. And uh, Elder Baldy has a great topic that I'm sure we're going to have some fun with about similarities between the economy of today and the 1920s. Uh, the amazing duplication of history continues, and we'll talk about that some. Uh, but that'll be on the other side of our bumper music, and then we'll do disclosure. So we'll be back on the other side of the bumper. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. For all you boys and girls that like to listen to podcasts about finance, you're strange and we like you. Um, this is Jake McClure, and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. We uh, are representing the Personal Wealth Coach. This podcast is called the Personal Wealth Coach. It's the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Just because it's registered with the, invest with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC thinks that we're some kind of white knights or black knights or no other implication involved. It's they're just the regulatory authority. Uh, the other thing is that you want to give this disclosure about what we deem? Well, the information we present on this podcast has been obtained from information we, our sources, we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. We will warranty and guarantee that all unsaid information on this podcast is incomplete. Thank you. Um, we also don't give investment advice on podcasts, even though that's what we're registered to do. So this is educational, not advice. Please do all your due diligence uh, before making an investment decision. All right. So we have a question from Inquisitor John, who sent us um, on a Saturday morning uh, a question, and we'd already had the the podcast recorded at that point. So that was last week. He says, stock splits. Walmart announced a three-for-one split later this month. This is February of 2024. Um, and he says, it seems splits were all the rage in the 1990s. Walmart did it, Disney, Rockwell, to name a few. And then splits seem to disappear. Uh, how do companies determine why, when, and how to do splits? With today's high valuations, are splits making a comeback? Thanks. Thank you, John. We really appreciate your ongoing inquisitiveness. Um, stock splits are funny because they really don't change the value of the company that's doing the stock split at all, or at least that's not what they're intended to do. They're trying to make it set up so that if somebody wants to buy a stock of their company, it's not too expensive for them to buy a whole share. That's a little bit irrelevant this at this point in history, because almost all stock purchase can be done in fractional shares now. There used to be a, a big deal about this. So this will kind of move back into history. Uh, you had things called lots, and you had things called odd lots, and a lot was a hundred share item. If you bought or sold in lots, your commission was lower. It made the math easier for the abacuses. Yes, abacuses. That's really what happened. That's not something you say when you stub your toe. Now, is it abacuses or abacai? Abacus, abacus, 
Abacai. What is it? Abacai. We could call it an ab- a bunch of abacai. I'm not right. sure that's correct, but we will deem it to be correct. All um, right. Okay. Uh, it has been redeemed to be correct. There we go. Right. Um, so an odd lot was any grouping of stocks that was less than 100 shares. And when you got down into um, the smaller fractions of shares, you, we do this in, in eighths, in bits. Um, yeah, that whole high school chant. Two bits, four bits, eight bits, a dollar. Six uh, bits. Six bits. I'm sorry. Two bits, four bits, six bits, a dollar. I, I jumped my math ahead. Because yeah. there's eight, eight of bits, them. Eight bits is a dollar. Right. So one eighth was a bit. And that's what you could trade your stocks in. Uh, you could trade an eighth of a share. Now, you paid more for the transaction because it's really hard to calculate that stuff. When you're adding lots together for 100 share purchases and so on. This was all done on graph paper. It was sent across telegraph wire. Um, it was actually printed on ticker tapes when this stuff was done. So the transaction had a lot of entry. And if you wanted to go and buy a stock, and the stock was $1,000 for one stock, and you say, all right, I'll just buy an eighth of a... St-. Well, that's still an eighth of $1,000. And most people didn't have that if they were short term investor or didn't have a lot of money. They couldn't even buy a single piece of a stock. So companies at that point said, hey, if our stock becomes too valuable per share, we should split it and it won't change the value of the company. We'll just take one share and make it two shares. And if you already had one share, you just have two shares now. And that'll half the price of the stock. And so then somebody with less money can come and buy a whole share. Well, Robinhood and E-Trade and the majority of other big apps out there that let you buy and sell don't care what fraction you buy. So it's kind of fading into the background, the concept of a stock split. It's still important. There are still reasons why you might want to look at, hey, I have a whole share versus not, but it's all behavioral now. It's not about we need to lower the bar so that everybody can be able to get in or make the tent bigger or any of the other really fuzzy um, analogies we could use to say, we want to be all-inclusive and anyone can buy. Because anybody can. It doesn't matter if you're Berkshire Hathaway and your stock's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per share or not. If you can buy a fractional share, it doesn't matter. You, you have something to add here. Well, I looked at that when Walmart announced their three-for-one stock split. And they, have been, they stated that it was to encourage employees to purchase a stock because in the employee stock option plan, you buy a share at a time. Aha. And if the price per share is too high, then they're unlikely to buy shares. So it's the same old story when you're buying one share at a time. If, 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 if something is, uh, I don't know, let's say it was uh, $100 a share and then it dropped to $33 a share, but the price of the company didn't go down, there are people who might buy more shares at $33 than they would at 100 And And there is, as you mentioned, something very psychological about it. There is this tendency to say, consciously or unconsciously, that if Walmart, and I don't know what Walmart stock was trading at, uh, I probably should look that up, but if, if Walmart stock was at $100 a share, 
okay, it was at one sixty five when they when they split it. So if it's one hundred sixty five dollars a share, and and you and they cut the price down to one third of that, you feel like you're buying a share of Walmart at a discount. Yeah. Now, so, now you're really not. Not but really. You think you are. Right. And and historically, when that happens with very popular companies, with with publicly very popular companies, when that happens, the stock price during a bull market does tend to go up because people psychologically look, oh, the stock, they're having a sale on Walmart stock and I like Walmart, so I'll buy some stock. And it's not really a sale. It's like if right. you're buying Oreos and you say this Oreo package is $4 and they cut the package in half and they make each half $2. Oreos are not on sale, but if you only wanted to buy $2 worth of Oreos, then you feel better about that. So that's what stock splits are. And it's and it's kind of interesting because behaviorally, we just went through the logical side of things of, you know, it shouldn't affect anything on valuation. It shouldn't have, shouldn't in the stop, should, shouldn't in the stock market are just silly words because it's all based on behavior. And what happened throughout, and John mentions this in the question, throughout the 1990s and, you know, Dell was a great example of this. Uh, Dell did a stock split and somebody would, you know, you, you have a famous conversation from the radio about sitting in a, in a diner in a little town in Texas with a farming family sitting at the table next to you and them talking about, gotta buy that Dell stock, it's about to split again. And that shouldn't be a rational reason to buy Dell. It shouldn't be a rational reason to buy anything, but it did in a bull market when stock splits, often the value goes up because more people are trying to buy it. And in the, in the case of Walmart, they're really doing this because of a technology reason. Their own stock purchase plan only allows whole share purchases where they haven't upgraded their own internal stock purchase plan for their employees to do what is available on almost any other stock purchase uh, abilities. Yeah, and, and they may even have the ability, but uh, when they say to Sam Walton believed it was important to keep our share price in a range for purchasing whole shares rather than fractions was accessible to all our associates. Right, and that was again, a good idea. It's, it's, psych it's psychological. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It, all, all stock splits are psychological. All not stock splits are psychological. I just mentioned Berkshire Hathaway. Let me see what they are. Berkshire Hathaway. They've got um, one of their shares. The um, the Class B is selling at three hundred and ninety four a share. Uh, and we want to say what's the Class A selling at? It's at five hundred ninety eight thousand dollars a share. Why didn't they split that? There's a really good reason. They didn't want a bunch of amateur investors voting against the, the expert moves of their leader. Uh, so they say, we're not going to make this easily accessible. Now, you can go in and actually buy fractional shares of Berkshire Hathaway now, uh, but that doesn't mean that it makes it accessible and you only get some fractional vote of a share. Uh, when you have something that's priced like that, it's it, it's done that way for a reason. They don't want people, they don't want amateurs second guessing. And when you've got a, a company that's based in hard data and it's not sexy, you're going to see a lot less of the stock splits. The newer 
um, aspirational companies that are doing things that nobody really understands still, but it's really hard to second guess them if you don't understand what they're doing. They want to make that as accessible as possible. And those are just two very limited examples. Uh, but it, it's a pretty standard practice when your share price gets up above a certain amount to split. Um, they want to make it accessible. Now, in this case, of Sam Walton always wanted his people to be able to buy it at, without using fractional shares. Well, why? Well, back then, fractional shares were more expensive to buy, and you didn't get any extra value for it. It just cost more because it was harder to buy. Uh, so stock splits have had some rationale behind them. In the case of Walmart here, it's simply technology, and that'll that'll catch up eventually. Stock splits eventually will become irrelevant because when you're looking at the value of your portfolio, it's not coming in on a statement. It's not an advertised thing. It's you're looking at it on your app or on your computer. It has no bearing on the value of your portfolio. So it's slowly fading away, even in high valuation times like now. And we have a completely new topic to d discuss. Uh, we alluded to this in the uh, the lead up to the, to the podcast, but and we've talked about the end of the 20th century being strikingly similar to what's happening in the market today. But we're going to go back even farther and how the 1920s and the 2020s are paralleling each other. Um, and I'm going to toss the ball into your court over there, or at least your side of the court, uh, because okay. I think we're on the same court. Go ahead. Well, there's a tremendous technological revolution going on in the United States right now. And the last time one of this magnitude occurred was in the 1920s. And before that, you have to go back to the 1820s and 30s. They have tended for some time to occur about once every 100 years. And there's reasons behind that. There's a book called Generations, uh, The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069 by Strauss and Howe that, that explains their rationale behind it. But there's others. Um, but we're having something occur that is creating the is a big piece of creating the tremendous jumps in productivity we've seen in the last year. Um, productivity me increases mean that for the same number of hours of labor, companies are producing more things to sell stuff. We call that technically uh, goods and services, and we're actually seeing that occur in the layoffs that are going on right now. The layoffs by the big tech companies, and there's a lot of them going on. Yeah, just just are, run while through. the tech companies are still growing very quickly. They're still growing. Their earnings are growing. Everything about the company is growing. They're doing more business. They're doing more things. They're producing more units of whatever they sell, and they're laying off tens of thousands of people. This happened in the 1920s as well. It happened a lot in the 1920s. And uh, what is happening is technology is enabling. The technological advances, digital technology advances mainly, are enabling companies to do more with fewer people, which increases our productivity. And incidentally, is probably one of the reasons that we are seeing wages rising annually at about 4.3%. But for the last six months or so, inflation's been running along about 1% to 2%. Um, what that means is we can afford to pay people more money and see the economy grow faster without creating inflation if they're producing more things that the companies that they work for can sell. Uh, and, and that is basically what's going on. When's the last time that happened? It happened on a large scale in the 1920s. Why did it happen in the 1920s? Well, it's important to first recognize that the United States 
was primarily an agricultural producing company in the 1920s. We had industrial production, we had agricultural production, but the agricultural production was much larger. The vast, vast, vast majority of people working in the United States who went into the, to the 1920s were working in agricultural production. Why? Well, because the typical farm had mules and plows and people with hoes and people picking cotton by hand and people harvesting by hand. Uh, admittedly, they had some machines that were pulled by animals, the McCormick Reaper and things like that. But in other cases, they didn't have machines. Uh, by the way, the McCormick Reaper and the cotton gin and things of that nature, uh, powered in, many, in some cases by steam, were the technological revolution that occurred 100 years before that, back in the 1800s. So we're, we're seeing another one. Now, Henry Ford, the, the, there's, there's actually quite a few of these. Uh, the, the electronic side of the revolution in the 1920s was from the company whose symbol was T. And people would talk about T. That's AT&T. Single letter company. The stock soared into the heavens, uh, paid no attention to its earnings because they were the people who were pioneering putting telephones in across the country. Uh, in the 1800s, during the revolution, we... Uh, brought in telegraphs, which were quite revolutionary, and railroads, which were quite revolutionary. So we had a transportation revolution. We had uh, a communication revolution. And then with the machines like the McCormick Reaper and the, the cotton gin, we had a production revolution. And with the steam engine, all this was going on in the 1830s, by the way, which produced a tremendous boom, which led to a collapse at the end of the boom, which ultimately led to the Civil War. But that's for another time. The, uh, so in the, in the 20th century, in the 1920s, we had the Roaring Twenties. We had a tremendous increase in productivity. We had a tremendous increase in wealth. We had a growing division between the wealthy and the not wealthy, uh, embodied in that song, Ain't We Got Fun, the rich gets richer and the poor gets poorer. In the meantime, in between time, Ain't We Got Fun. Um, but that was going on, and is in, and there, because of technological revolutions that were going on that displaced people. So that we ended the 20th century, for example, instead of having, we entered the 20th century with about 98% of the people in the United States working on farms, we exited with about 2%. And a lot of people lost their jobs in the 1920s on farms. We didn't see the major impact of that until the 1930s, but it was going on. Yeah. Now, now we're just 24 years later after 2%, we're now at 0.02%. Yep. Why? Well, because there's digital machines that are doing most of the farming right now. The revolution continues. Um, it wasn't very, I, and I tell people, one of the examples, it used to be in just a few years ago in the Temple, Belton, Central Texas area, you could always get a job running a forklift. If you were reasonably nimble and you could do basic driving skills, there were always jobs available for forklift operators. There were always jobs available for call centers. Uh, we had some big call centers in the area, and people who could basically handle the telephone uh, were kept quite busy, legitimate jobs. Um, those are gone. Why? Because they've been replaced by computers. Uh, when factories are built today, the forklifts are run by robots. The um, the same thing is true at the call centers. It's it's matter of fact, if you call any major corporation today, you don't get to you don't go to a call center or a corporation is not pestering you with a call center. It's a computer that's pestering you, and you're just very fortunate if you can get a person on the phone. Yeah, I, I have something to add here about this revolution, about how things are changing, because part of that revolution was offshoring our. And industry, our ability to make things, physical things, we had cheaper labor elsewhere. We kept the designs and we kept the ability to innovate those things. And then we 
sent them elsewhere to be built. And as part of all of this, um, part of the, the innovation of being able to design something in the United States and having it be able to be created near instantaneously on the other side of the planet is all part of this same revolution. Then we had in the middle of all of this, we had a trade war, then we had a pandemic, and that's disrupted that very system that we're talking about. There's a milestone that we just passed, and this milestone, from my perspective, is a big one. Um, the Bureau of Economic Analysis released a report on the 7th of February talking about the trade deficit. And uh, if, if you want to look this report up, it's called the U.S. International Trade in Goods and Services, December and Annual 2023. Um, why is that important? Because it talks about what did we do in 2023? It was a strange year. We're in the middle of strange times. The deficit with China decreased it's $103 billion. That's, that means that we're buying $103 billion more than we're selling to China. Uh, our exports to China are about $148 billion, and our imports are about $427 billion. So that's a, that's a big difference. That's not the important piece of news that I'm bringing you. It's just a little piece of side note. Um, our trade with Mexico, both import and export, just passed up our trade with China. Just let that sink in for a second. We're trading more with Mexico than with China. That's a big deal. Canada's getting close. So our imports from China, which is the larger of the import or export, our imports from China are $427 billion. Our imports from Canada are $421 billion, and our imports with Mexico are $475 billion. Why am I saying that? Because trade has shifted and we have a lot better relationship with Canada and China. And it is part of what is changing with technology today. Uh, the places that we're buying in Mexico are automated at high, high levels, where the places in China were mostly not as automated. In fact, vastly not as automated in a lot of cases, where people just got really good at using their hands to put parts together, and they would do it really, really fast, but not as fast as a machine. So now it's happening in Mexico and in Canada. When you look at that, that's a big milestone. So uh, what's the parallel from the 1920s on this? Well, we were shifting where we were creating things then too, only it was at a state level. And this is fascinating. We had been exporting the industrial jobs to the Northeast of the United States. That was the industrial area, period. If you weren't in the Northeast, you weren't in industry. Why? Because they have a lot of falling water there. I don't mean rain, I mean waterfalls. And that powered a lot of equipment. When the steam engine came out, that disrupted it a little bit. But over time, as electricity came in as being the major power of industry, we moved to transportation center points like Detroit. Why is that a transportation center point? Well, you're next to the Great Lakes. You have rivers and you have railroads. You're centrally located in the United States, which was our customer base, still is, for our industry. So what are we doing now? Well, we're bringing the manufacturing closer to where it's being 
delivered. These are all things that are running in parallel, and it's fascinating. I, I think you're, he, Jeff El, old Elder Baldy um, came up with this second piece of, as our timeless thing, but it's fascinating to see how trade shifts with the technology as it is shifting. It's amazing. And one of the things that happened that we tend to overlook because it's passed by now is, as you said, manufacturing was in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. After the Civil War, as steam power came online and later as electricity came online, a lot of the manufacturing moved to the South. And the reason it moved to the South is because they no longer needed the waterfalls and labor was less expensive in the South than it was in the North. Right. It was that simple. We had a lot of people out of work. Why? Because the South was primarily agricultural. And after the agricultural revolution, technological revolution, um, the people in the South, a lot of people were out of work. A lot of people were poor. And so you could hire a lot of people to work. As a matter of fact, if you look at where major factories have gone in to manufacture cars or whatever over the last 20 or 30 years, you see they generally are in the South and in Appalachia. Yeah. And the reason is that's where the low labor cost is. Now, we're this, still, it's just an echo of what was going on because why, did, why were they able to move to the South? Well, as you said, the sources of energy became available. But more than that, we had the sources of transportation. We had railroads in the last century that could take the things that were made in the South and sell them in the North. We didn't have that before. To, to add and to today, go, go ahead. You today, we have gigantic airliners that haul cargo back and forth across the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean day after day after day. And, of course, we have these container ships, which, by the way, are run by computers now. Um, as a matter of fact, I, have, I haven't personally seen this, but I have uh, certainly read about it and heard uh, qualified marine professionals tell me that this is what's happening. They literally have a huge container ship that leaves China or Japan. Everybody leaves the ship. Something, a, a, a boat meets it as it approaches the west coast of the United States, and they load a few people on to bring it into port because the computers do a wonderful job of taking it across the ocean, uh, and they cost a lot less than people do. Yeah, and you mentioned... And we're seeing more and more of that. You, you mentioned that we're moving so many of these uh, automation jobs, these uh, industry jobs to Appalachia. And then right after that, you mentioned the switches in energy in the 1920s. Well, we just had another change in the energy world. Appalachia was about coal. Mm-hmm. It was everything about coal. Uh, it was the uh, it was the bottled sunshine. That's they we used to call it uh, sunshine in the dirt coal. Well, natural gas is more efficient. It yeah. also happens to be cleaner, but more efficient counts more in the economy. So it has some better benefits as well. But if it had been dirtier and more efficient, we would have gone to that too. As sad as that makes me to say, we would have. That's the economy. But it was cheaper, which put a bunch of people out of work in Appalachia. And you heard a lot of people on the political campaign trails talking about, we got to protect coal. We got to bring coal back. No, you don't bring back inefficient technologies. You produce something else that they can do. And so when you see car manufacturing, automobile manufacturing, in Appalachia, it's because people aren't dumb anywhere. You can train them to do what you need to do, and they're more educated in Appalachia than they are in China. Wait, just soak that in for a second. <laughs> that tells you a lot about our productivity and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, so that's kind of the wrap-up here. We are in the middle of a massive technological shift that we get to live through, and most of us 
on a day-to-day basis, get a minor jolt of excitement that maybe once every few months about, oh, that's a new thing. I might want to try that. We're experiencing changes that make the industrial revolution pale in comparison. We've got satellites in the sky to make our internet connection available anywhere. I mean, rocket ships taking off almost every day. And at some point, it's going to be lots of rocket ships taking off every day. That's just where we're going. This is the Jetsons. We are in the future, only it's just the present. To give some idea about the the big, we've just barely touched on this, but the big picture. We've been talking about the fact that the we followed cheap labor places and the labor is no longer cheap nor reliable in a lot of places and automation is replacing it. That's a nice concept, but here's the numbers. For 2023, the goods and service deficit was $773.4 billion, down $177.8 billion. Now, that's a big drop. Uh, that's about a 16 to 20% drop. It, it was $951 billion in 2022. It's $773. 3.4 billion. Um, exports were up 35 billion. Imports uh, were down 142.7 billion from 2022. What does that tell you? We are home shoring and we have virtually full employment in the United States. We have uh, millions, literally, I think about 9 million jobs unfilled in the United States. So we can't hire a bunch of new people to do this stuff. We've kind of gotten burned about dependent on China or anybody else for critical things that we need made. And so we are digitalizing the workplace, the factories, so that we can bring the we can bring the manufacturing home. And it's an accelerating uh, rate we're doing that. By the way, this also happened in the 1920s. Uh, we imported less and less and less during the 1920s and exported more and more and more. And I think we're seeing a repeat of that. All right. So that wraps up this episode. We'll have a market episode released same day as well. So uh, I'm sure we'll have more to listen to in there. In the meantime, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we are real people and we do talk to people about investments, manage their portfolios, give them advice. That's what we do for a living. If you want to talk to us uh, via phone, uh, you can call us locally at 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Should you still have a landline? Or you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can find radio programs archived from lots of years of that. We can find our podcast anywhere you find that. Uh, You can sign up for our newsletter on the website. Uh, You can also contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next episode, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.